a plucky young woman goes to prison, trouble on the Mexican border, a Missouri tragedy, strikers conflict, assassinated in his own home, and the Graham tragedy, plus much more from the Memphis Appeal and the Bolivar Bulletin for the 5th of March, 1886. Please note that some articles use language considered offensive by today's standards. The first set of articles are from the Memphis Appeal. The Chinese in the West, Washington, March 4th. Rumors were current here today to the effect that the Chinese minister had received instructions from his government to demand from the United States the total disavowal of the recent outrages against Chinese residents in the western states and territories. The condition, punishment, if killing, could be proved against individuals and a pecuniary indemnity to the sufferers for their losses, and that, if the United States refused to comply with the demand, the President was to be informed that the Chinese government would immediately proceed to collect the indemnity from American citizens in business in the imperial territory and withdraw its protection from them. In an interview this evening, the Chinese minister said to a representative of the Associated Press that while he has information that China, and especially the province of Canton, the home of a large percentage of the Chinese of the Pacific Slope, is greatly excited over the outrages and that retaliation has, in some instances, been threatened by the excited people, he has received no instructions to make any formal demands upon this government, neither has he any information that such demands are contemplated. Lively time on a railroad train, East St. Louis, Illinois, March the 4th. For some time past, police officers who have been on the lookout for two sharpers who had been victimizing people at the relay depot. At a late hour Tuesday evening, as the Louisville and Nashville train was pulling out, two officers saw these men get on board. They ran after the train, jumped on, and pulled the bell rope. The train came to a standstill, and the two officers then entered the rear car with their revolvers in hand. When the passengers caught sight of the glistening weapons, they thought that the officers were train robbers, and the women began to shriek, while the men jumped from their seats and endeavored to escape out of the forward door. The intelligence that train robbers were aboard was soon communicated to the passengers in the forward cars, and the stampede became general. The parties who the officers were after took advantage of the general commotion to escape from the cars. Two passengers who jumped from the train and started to run were just about to cross the track at the rear end of the train when the officers caught sight of them and thinking they were the two men they wanted gave chase. The men did not stop until several shots had been fired after them. When the officers saw they had not secured the men they were after, they concluded to place the strangers under arrest anyway, supposing they were members of the gang. The mistake was not discovered for several hours. Some of the lady passengers suffered severely from fright. A plucky young girl, Detroit, Michigan, March the 4th. A slender, bright-eyed young girl of 17 or 18 years, hanging tightly to a burly fellow and ordering him about, attracted the attention of the people about the Michigan Central Depot yesterday. The young woman was Hattie McKay, daughter of Sheriff McKay of Tuscola County, she was on her way to Jackson Prison and had in her custody Samuel Woodman, who was sentenced from Tuscola County for a one year for assaulting his wife with a carving knife. The sheriff is very sick at home, and Hattie, since his illness, has taken up and down so much of his business as it is possible for a woman to do. When asked if she was not afraid to bring such a strong and desperate man to prison, she replied, Oh, indeed, no. I don't handcuff him, but I have a revolver in my pocket, and I keep him in sight all the time. 
If he was to start to get away from me, I would call out for help, and some of the men on the train would help me. Trouble on the Mexican border. New York, March the 4th. A Galveston special says, A startling report has just been received here from Carrazo, a town just 60 miles below Laredo on the Rio Grande River. All able-bodied citizens are under arms resisting an attack from Mexican bandits. A sheep herder from a ranch near Carrizo arrived in that town yesterday morning in a state of great excitement, claiming that he had the night before been a prisoner in the hands of about 50 Mexican bandits who were making preparations to raid and plunder the town of Carrizo. The herder said that the bandits were all heavily armed and well-mounted, and that their attack could be expected any moment. Hence, the precaution of the citizens who are prepared to give them a warm reception, as Company F, 19th Infantry, are en route from Ringgold Barracks to Laredo, it might be near there by this time, and it is likely they will take a hand against the bandits should they make the attack. Much interest is manifested here for later intelligence, which is expected to be of a most startling character. Chinese leaving California for Texas, El Paso, Texas, March the 4th. In the last few days, a large number of Chinese from California have passed through El Paso on their way to New Orleans and Texas cities. Many of them are also locating in the territorial towns of New Mexico and Arizona. San Francisco is represented as swarming with Mongolians who have been driven out of Oregon and Washington Territory, and the pressure, it is claimed, is being relieved by the six companies shipping them east, where the antagonism against the Chinese is not so strong as on the Pacific Slope. This influx, however, into the territories of Arizona and New Mexico has aroused the latent antagonism there, and anti-Chinese leagues have already been organized at Socorro and other towns in New Mexico and at Tucson and Tombstone in Arizona, all of which places are suffering from a heavy increase in their Chinese population and which may lead to their violent eviction as was recently the case in Washington Territory. Friedlander Surrenders, sequel to a celebrated suit against Jordan, Marsh, and Company. New York, March 4th. Albert Friedlander of the firm of A. Friedlander and Company, manufacturers of ladies' cloaks, voluntarily surrendered to the sheriff yesterday. A warrant had been issued for his arrest on complaint of Jordan, Marsh, and Company of Boston, who claimed that the defendant, by fraud and deceit, obtained $56,000 from them. The action is a sequel to a suit brought by Friedlander and Company against Jordan, Marsh, and Company last fall to recover $57,000 alleged to be due for cloaks sold to the Boston firm by the New York manufacturers. The claim is disputed by Jordan, Marsh, and Company, who alleged that Friedlander entered into collusion with John Hughes, the buyer for the cloak department of the Boston firm, whereby a certain quality of cloaks were to be shipped to Jordan, Marsh, and Company over and above the number required by the firm. Hughes' object in entering into this camp compact was to ingratiate himself into the firm he was working for and by reason of big sales at the Boston store, thus obtain an increase of salary. From time to time, he arranged with Freelander and Company that the New York firm was to send blank invoices and bills, and Hughes was to fill them out and present them to the firm of Jordan Marsh and Company, who would send the remittance to New York. It is claimed that in this way, $56,000 worth of fictitious bills were paid to Freelander, hence the arrest. The fraudulent transactions between Hughes and Freelander cover from the spring of 1883 until June 1885. 
Hughes confessed his part in the transaction, and the principal affidavit on which the order of arrest was issued was made by him. Friedlander gave bail in the sum of $20,000. A Missouri Tragedy, Springfield, Missouri, March 4th. Details have just been received here of a tragedy in Taney County in which Nate N. Kinney shot and killed Andrew J. V. Cogburn at Oak Grove Church last Sunday evening. Kinney and his boy Payne rode up to the schoolhouse where the Reverend H. C. Dennison was holding a meeting and commanded Cogburn, who was standing near the door, to throw up his hands and, meeting a refusal, shot him down, killing him instantly. The inquest was held and Kinney was acquitted by the coroner's jury. From what can be learned, there were several of Kenny's friends at the inquest heavily armed, and Kenny himself carried a shotgun revolver, although being under arrest. Story of the strikes. Wildest scenes of excitement in Brooklyn. Police powerless. Labor troubles at St. Louis, Springfield, and other places. Chicago, Illinois, March 4th. Fully 800 men are at work in the McCormick Reaper factory this morning. The strike is considered at an end. Railroad strike in Maryland, Baltimore, Maryland, March 4th. Several hundred men employed in grading for a short-line railroad between Baltimore and Annapolis have quit work, and yesterday three Italians and two Negroes, Daniel Dorsey and John Gaffney, made an assault upon some at work. The sheriff of Ann Arndell County with a posse went to the scene of the disturbance and arrested the Negroes, but the Italians could not be found. The whole force will be paid off today. The strikers demand an advance of 25 cents per day. Conflict between strikers and non-union men at St. Louis. St. Louis, Missouri, March the 4th. The wire mill on 21st and Papin Streets was last night the scene of a conflict between strikers and non-strikers that resulted in the injury of two men and in the arrest of four. Some time ago, the wire rollers employed in the shop struck for an increase of wages. They were receiving $1 a day and demanded $1.25. They were nearly all boys between 15 and 20 years of age, and the company refused to grant the demand. As a compromise, they offered the boys $1.15 a day and told them if they chose, they could all go back to work at that figure. Some of them went to work and others refused. Last night, as the boys who were at work were on their way home from the shop, they were waylaid by half a dozen strikers who attacked them. John Howard and Mike Fleming were injured, and their cries summoned officers Kenny, Boland, and McKernan. The strikers were pursued, and four of them arrested and locked up at the four courts. They gave their names as James Nolan, William Keel, Benjamin Burke, and Edward Florian. Charges of riotously disturbing the peace were entered against them. Assassinated in his own house, Vienna, Illinois, March the 4th. Frank McIntosh, a farmer living seven miles west of here, was assassinated last night in his house by some unknown person. The assassin shot him through a hole dug out between the logs of the house. The ball entered his left breast near the heart, killing him instantly. Marcellus, Michigan, March 4th. A teacher in the Thompson District School named M.J. Vincent punished a child of Thomas Cleland's a few days ago, whereupon the father went to the schoolhouse and attacked the teacher with the razor, cutting him in several places. One cut extended 14 inches across the breast, severed a rib, and exposed the heart. Vincent's condition is critical. Cleland was arrested but waived examination and was held for trial. Brantley and Cooley, who assaulted Sergeant Kunholtz at the Pacific House a short time since, were on trial in the criminal court yesterday. 
Anderson, the rascally darky who stole 10 barrels of potatoes from the elevator Tuesday, has been identified as the thief who stole 10 barrels of flour from the Chesapeake Depot. He said that he had been sent for it and gave a wrong number. The remaining stories are from the Bolivar Bulletin. On the 26th, Wybreen Warantena was hanged at Indiana for murder. A large crowd gathered in the town to witness the execution, and it was conducted in the presence of over a thousand people. Pat Smith of Stone City, near Anamosa, Iowa, was arrested on the 26th on suspicion of having murdered his wife, who was found dead in bed the day previous. He is in Anamosa Jail. Frank J. Cannon and Angus Cannon have been held in $1,000 bail each at Salt Lake City for assault on United States Attorney Dixon. S.A. Kenner was discharged. H.I. Gowans, H.W. Lee, H.J. Folger, all defiant, unlawful cohabitors, were sentenced on the 26th to six months imprisonment and $300 fine. In the case of Fred Foote, charged with the murder of Andrew J. Brink, saloon keeper at Fenton, Michigan, on the evening of December 29th last, on trial at Flint on the 26th, the jury brought in a verdict of murder in the first degree. The prisoner listened coolly to the verdict and was remanded to jail to await sentence. On the 26th, Charles Bullen, who was awaiting trial in New York for the murder of his wife, committed suicide by cutting his throat with a pocket knife in his cell in the tombs. On the 26th, John Schlesman, 65 years old, committed suicide in West Hamburg, Pennsylvania. He tried to shoot himself with a revolver first, but the cartridge failed to explode. He then cut the artery of his left wrist with a pocket knife and gashed himself at various places in the arm and in one of his feet and bled to death. Gottlieb Lentz, killed his wife and then himself at Philadelphia on the 28th. Frank Burgell, who shot his wife at Maslin, Ohio on the 27th, afterward committed suicide. Frequent listeners will remember this story from a few days ago about the Soldiers' Orphan Schools in Pennsylvania. The charges of mismanagement of the Soldiers' Orphan School in Pennsylvania continue to excite much interest. Governor Pattison will, it is expected, announce his intentions as to investigation, the Grand Army of the Republic intend to aid in sifting the facts to the bottom. The next section of the paper is titled Southern Gleanings. James T. Marler, who has been twice convicted and once sentenced to death in Crenshaw County, Alabama, for procuring the murder of Dr. Colquitt in 1878, has at last been acquitted of the charge. The jury, in the case of John J. Audmort, late redemption clerk in the sub-treasury in New Orleans, found him guilty of embezzling $25,840, but strongly recommended him to mercy. W.J. Ward, who murdered J.J. Palmer in Dale County, Tennessee in September 1883, is to be hanged March the 19th, the governor having declined to commute the sentence. Thomas Jones of Petersburg, Virginia, was found in a creek a few days since murdered. The deed is supposed to have been committed by some woodcutters in the employee of the railroad. W.C. Rutland, manager on Colonel Richardson's LaGrange Plantation near Greenville, Mississippi, while trying to prevent a Negro tenant of the place moving mortgaged property a few days ago, got into a difficulty in which the Negro was shot and instantly killed. In the circuit court in Nicholsville, Kentucky, the jury, in the case of Bob Smith for the murder of his stepfather, 
old man Jim C., last November, rendered a verdict of murder and fixed the penalty at death. The case is causing much excitement in that locality as it is the first time a jury has fixed a sentence of death since 1858. Frequent listeners will remember this story from yesterday. The little town of Cedartown, Georgia, was thrown into a state of great excitement a few days ago over the arrest of a boy who was supposed to be Freddie Freeman, the 14-year-old murderer of his little playmate Alex Maudlin, whom he killed in Tacoa for $1.85. E.H. Bennett of Dallas, Texas, late editor of the Texas Cowboy and the Democrat, was arrested a few days ago by a United States Deputy Marshal on the charge of attempting to bribe jurors in the federal court. A pair of well-dressed swindlers professing to publish a business index in the Memphis, Tennessee Evening Ledger recently swindled a number of Memphis merchants to the tune of $10 each. They were last heard of in Nashville on the same racket. The complications growing out of the killing of J.W. Pierce, or J.P. Weaver, whichever he was, and the accident on the Georgia Pacific Railway are by no means ended. The Superior Court at Atlanta, Georgia, recently granted an injunction at the prayer of Mrs. J.W. Pierce of Texas to prevent Mrs. J.P. Weaver of Indiana from removing the body to Indiana. The deceased is said to have been worth $200,000. Murdered by his cousin, Petersburg, Virginia, March 1st. Word reached here yesterday of a terrible tragedy in Sussex County Saturday. William Bain, a prominent citizen, while walking along the road with a friend, was met by Quincy Bain, a distant relative. The men had long been enemies, and yesterday when they met, no words were exchanged. Quincy Bain was armed with a double-barreled shotgun loaded with buckshot. He fired at William, killing him instantly. The murderer fled and has not yet been arrested. The murder was the outcome of the alleged attempt on the part of William to outrage Quincy Bain's wife. Threats of lynching are made. The Graham Tragedy The inquest over the remains of the murdered Mrs. Graham, damaging testimony in regard to Graham's movements followed by a confession by the latter of the crime and its entire responsibility, lynching talk. Springfield, Missouri, February the 28th. The inquest over the remains of Mrs. Sarah Graham was resumed at the courthouse at 9 o'clock yesterday morning, and the proceedings were watched with increased interest by a large throng of people. The first witness examined was Peter Hawkins, a colored man who worked on the Malloy farm from last July till October 8th. Among other things, he testified that when Graham returned home from St. Louis, where he had been after his two boys, he arrived alone at the house about after midnight and that two hours before that time he heard two pistol shots fired, apparently near the well where the body was found. That some days after he remarked to Graham that something smelled bad at the well, to which the latter replied that he guessed it was a hog and that he was going to fill the well up. Hawkins' testimony, however, is not considered very reliable as his mind is not altogether sound. Roy Graham, the bright little six-year-old boy of the dead woman, was placed on the stand and recognized some of the clothing and other articles found with the body as belonging to his mother. The trunk that Mrs. Graham took with her away from Fort Wayne, Indiana, having been found, was brought into the courtroom, and Rev. J.C. Plum, pastor of the Congressional Church at North Springfield, testified that George E. Graham had left it at his house, having asked permission to do so. Roy Graham, on being recalled, said he knew the trunk and that it was his mother's. 
Charlie Graham was also recalled and recognized the trunk as belonging to his mother and said that the last time he saw it was at Faye's restaurant in North Springfield when his father unpacked it and took out some clothing for him and Roy. Then he fastened up the trunk and left it in the restaurant. Graham stated that his wife took the trunk with her when, as he alleges, she went on to Kansas City the night of the 30th of last September. He has seen by your correspondent last night, and when asked about the trunk, he owned up that he left it at Reverend J.C. Plum sometime last November and said he made the former statement because he did not want to injure his case, that the night he and his wife separated here, they were both somewhat excited and forgot about the trunk at the restaurant. And it being left, he concluded it was best to leave it at Reverend Mr. Plum's until he could send it to his former wife. He said that he had not opened the trunk since it was packed by her, and he did not know what was in it. The last witness examined last evening was Miss Eddie Malloy, who said she was 19 years old and had lived with Mrs. Molly Malloy ever since she was six. She first met Mrs. Malloy at Chicago and had lived at various places since that time. Nothing of any special importance was elicited from this witness, who evidently manifested a disposition not to tell all she knew of Mrs. Malloy and her association with George E. Graham. At the close of the examination, the inquest adjourned until Monday morning. Mr. T.L. Breeze and his wife, who was a sister of the dead woman, arrived here from Fort Wayne last night and will remain until after the inquest and examinations are concluded. It has been announced that they are coming. A crowd of people, estimated at not less than 1,000 persons, was at the North Springfield Depot to meet them. Springfield, Missouri, February 28th. Mr. Breeze went out to the Malloy farm to see the old well or cave in which Mrs. Graham's body was thrown. A strange circumstance in relation to the horrible crime has come to light. When on the occasion of T.L. Breeze's former visit to the city, officers went out to the Malloy farm on a tour of investigation. Mrs. Malloy took her Bible to have family worship and read the fourth chapter of John, where there is an account of Christ's conversation with the woman of Samaria at the well, in which he told her, The man thou hast is not thy husband. An impression was made on the mind of John Potter of Brookline, and he afterward dreamed that the missing woman was in the bottom of a well. The dream had a part in urging him to the search, which resulted in the finding of the body. Graham's Confession Tonight, Graham made a lengthy confession, which, trimmed of all verbiage, is that he alone is responsible for the death of Sarah Graham. He says that most of the statements he has heretofore made are true up to the point of the night of the 30th. Using his own language, he then says, quote, on that night, Mrs. Sarah Graham and myself walked from Springfield to the Malloy Farm, five miles southwest of town. For the death of Sarah Graham, I am alone responsible. No one else was concerned with me in any way in the matter. Mrs. Malloy and Mrs. Cora E. Graham are wholly and entirely innocent of any complicity, complicity whatsoever in the matter. Mrs. Malloy was in Kansas for ten days before and did not return until two and a half months afterward. Mrs. Cora E. Graham never knew or had the slightest idea that Sarah Graham was ever within 300 miles of the farm. Neither of them ever would have in any degree abetted or tolerated any such thing. And the story continues. Lynching talk. The talk of lynching Graham continues as common as ever. Men openly express their readiness to join a mob and argue that a trial might cost the state several thousand dollars, whereas a lynching would not cost over five dollars for a rope and repairs to the door of the county jail. Believe it or not, this is really the title of this next article. They did not eat him raw from the St. James Gazette. 
The schooner Fairley from the Samoa Islands brings intelligence that the natives of Baga Island have murdered a traitor named Child and afterward cooked and eaten portions of his body. That's the crime news for the 5th of March, 1886. Please join me next time for a year of crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee.